This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, April 23rd, 2015. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Jahar Sarnayev killed four and wounded 280 people during the Boston Marathon bombing. He has been found guilty of that. Now it's shown he committed this further wrong. John, prosecutors say that Jahar Sarnayev is a remorseless killer. They showed the jury a picture of him giving the middle finger to a camera. Adding to that CNN report, the front page of the New York Post has a photo of his middle finger pose right at the camera, the security camera, and the words, no, fuck you, although the Post doesn't say fuck, they say F, squiggly, interrobang, K. Post goes on to say right there on the front page, the unrepentant bastard, they could say bastard, no squiggle lines, has pure contempt for America. Boston bomber Jahar Sarnayev flipped the bird to a jailhouse security camera in a damning video played for jurors yesterday in the death penalty phase of his terror trial. So his guilt was never in doubt. The defense admitted it. But now that his life hangs in the balance, the middle finger is going to be the thing that damns him. Not all the killing, not all the carnage. For the record, I'll say this, because this isn't really about my stance on the death penalty, but since it's hanging out there, I will say that it would not bother me if this guy were executed, but it does bother me how the death penalty is administered in this country in other cases. And if I were given the choice of trading what I consider to be justice in the Sarnayev case for the injustice that's perpetuated, in other words, if you said a total moratorium, even if that means that many people who deserve it will go on living, I would sign up for that. But let's put that aside. What I want to talk about is that Americans are totally insane, still insane about profanity. Now, as society has shifted, we accept it more, except officially. I think we do this thing where we pretend to be much more upset than we actually are. Uh, maybe this happens in all walks of life, but there are, in other areas, ways to test, ways to have a litmus test where we say, huh, that's actually not that offensive. Like, I don't know, gay marriage. It turns out that after it happens, maybe after Ellen comes out, pick whatever hallmark touchstone event you want to pick. After it's real, a lot of people look around and say, wait a minute, that wasn't so bad, and I never thought it was that bad in the first place. Maybe the same thing is going on with profanity. But man, in public and officially, do we have to pretend this is the worst thing in the world? We are insane about crude gestures that, that in and of themselves are just one finger over another. But these conjure up rude words, or not even words, but words that have to be represented by placeholder symbols in place of the you and the C on the cover of major American dailies. Brian Price, the manager of the Cincinnati Reds baseball team the other day, let loose a what was called a profanity-laced tirade. But if you check the tape, you'll find that it was actually a never-ending string of profanities laced with the occasional FCC-approved noun or verb a sample. It's nobody's business. It's certainly not the opponent's business. We've got to deal with this I'd like to talk, and I have spoken as candidly as I can with you people. If, if that's not good enough, I won't say a thing. I'll go, yes, sir, no, sir. And I can do that. 
And we were so upset, so Price apologized. But guess what? The content he did not apologize for, which was he was letting loose on a reporter for being a reporter, for reporting on which Reds players could and couldn't play in the game. And I think that apology, just for the cursing, is a hundred percent backwards because I am pro-fanity. I cannot wait for the day when someone apologizes for not cursing, for not swearing. Yes, when I told the reporter for TMZ to go jump in a lake, what I really meant is that he should piss off or preferably fuck off. I'm sorry to all the lakes I may have endangered with the threat of being befouled by paparazzi. I feel really shitty about it. On the show today, I spiel about muffins, the Americo-English variety. But first, we have the results. Your story submissions have been vetted. And we will play the greatest submissions in our attempt to find the greatest story ever told, then coached up, and then told even better. Matthew Dix is the guy I call the most interesting man in the world. Several people agree with me. I think his wife does. Matthew Dix is the author of several novels. That's not all. He's a teacher in the Hartford Public Schools. That's not all. He's won the storytelling contest at the Moth, the Story Slam, something like 16 times. It always has to be updated. Am I accurate with 16, Matt? It is 16. 16 times. He runs storytelling workshops, and he's coaching up. He's going to take one of our listeners who submitted to the storytelling opportunity. We're going to play a bunch of clips, and he's going to coach them up. What you think of uh, the quality of our submissions, Matt? I thought there were some excellent submissions. I mean, we received a lot of them, and you know, some of them needed more coaching than others, but there were some great entries. But there will be one who we coach, one submission to rise above them all. Let's start with playing a guy named Frank Kennedy, and uh, let's see what was in his idea for a story he wanted to tell. I'm Frank Kennedy, father of an autistic boy in third grade. When he was in second grade, he came home from a half day that the elementary school inexplicably has sometimes. And uh, I offered to take him to lunch. About a year before that, he probably would have said nothing. Uh, he doesn't communicate very well. That's one of his issues. But this time, he looked at me and he said, yes. I asked him where he wanted to go. More complex question for him. There's lots of places around our house fast food, pizza joints, delis, and some of them he, he likes. So I asked him where, and he looked at me and said, five, five, five. I had no idea what he was talking about, and he knew I had no idea what he was talking about. He was the smartest guy in the conversation. I'm competitive. I wanted to know what he was talking about. I thought about what he likes to do. He's, he observes all the time. And I said, you want to go to Wendy's, don't you? He said, yes. Turns out Wendy's is at 555 West Lancaster Avenue around the corner from our house. It also turns out he knew all the addresses of all the places. We went there. We had lunch. We didn't talk much, but we had a good time. All right, Matt, I like that for the substance, but also there was something about Frank that he seems like, he doesn't seem precious. He doesn't seem, he didn't use jargon. I understand, I mean, it's it's troublesome. I know a lot of people who have autistic children and some of them, you know, will talk about their eyes and he's, you know, <laughs> they'll talk about it in a little bit of a saccharine way. And it seemed like Frank was salt of the earth type regular guy who is dealing with this and finding the joy in it or the surprise in it wherever he could. Yeah, he really did. He seems like an ordinary guy. 
And, you know, one of the important things I heard was he's self-deprecating, which yeah. is a key. So he's willing to sort of put himself down and raise his kid up a little bit. And I think what he's talking about is something that a lot of people can relate to. And in the end of the story, it doesn't. he's not making himself out to be the hero. He's just making himself out to be like an ordinary guy that figured out this one thing. Mm. And even at the end, the best stories, they don't have knots at the end. They have sort of frayed ends, I like to think. And so his frayed end is great because he doesn't say, like, I figured it out and the world got better and my, me and my son communicated perfectly. They basically went to hamburgers and sat, it sounds like, kind of in silence. But mm -hmm. they had a good time anyway. So I love that how it's not perfect at the end of his I'm glad, story. I'm glad you put it that way. This is my number one pet peeve with TED Talks and bad kind of storytelling, the perfect bow. It always has to end in the perfect bow. Life doesn't end in the perfect bow. Maybe one time you'll get a story that does, but I'll be suspicious of it. Still, that doesn't mean you can't get some good meaning out of a story with, as you say, a frayed end. No, and when you have the frayed end, I kind of think that the story continues to live on in the listener if there's no neat bow at the end. You put a bow at the end of the story and it's forgotten the next day because you don't have to remember it because yeah. it's all cleaned up. Yeah. You know, you let it hang on the person, leave some details out, mm -hmm. let them wander and weeks later they'll still be thinking about it. And it doesn't stay because it doesn't comport with our uh, experience of reality. That's right. not how things really are. All right, let's go to David, a story about school days. When I was a senior at a preppy high school called Shadyside Academy, I used to roll around in attention like a dog on a lawn where something died. I talked a lot about why I was an existentialist because I was taking a philosophy class with this legendary teacher named Dr. Satula. One day before class, I got in a clay fight with my best friend in the art room. We just smeared wet clay all over each other until it was in our hair, on our clothes, in between our eyebrows. And then we made sure that we were late for class so that we could make a big entrance. I don't know what I expected Dr. Satula to do, but he just gave us a little nod and kept talking. I sat down, and every single second that no one paid attention to me, I felt stupider and stupider. I learned a lot from Dr. Satula that year, but I learned the most important lesson that day. Just walk in like everyone else, sit down, and listen. So that was well presented. He seems like the sort of guy who I'd want to spend time with, at least based on that. He put some time into it. The visual, I like the visual yeah. that it conjures. Maybe it is a little too much of a bow. Like, why did he Why did he come to that lesson, necessarily? Yeah. You know, I kind of feel like he told us the whole story right there. Yeah. Like, with Frank, I'm wondering more about his kid and about his life and how they work. But with that, I feel like I got the whole story. You know, not that it's a bad story, but when I feel I get the story in a minute, I probably... You know, I tend to think there's not that much of a story there. It's more there's, of an anecdote. There's a lot of great opportunity for the detail of the clay fight, and you could really embellish that. It could be fun along the way. Don't know what it necessarily will add up to, though it could. Right, it yeah. could. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go now to, this was Maggie, who's a single mom in Iowa City. A couple, yeah, couple things going for it. Uh, she seems really funny. Let's see Maggie. Hi, uh, my name is Maggie John, and I'm a single mom living in Iowa City, Iowa, which, um, if you don't know your colleges, is the home of the University of Iowa. I'm supposed to say go Hawkeyes, but whatever. Uh, my story is about the time that I picked up a drunk guy, um, and I mean, I, I literally, he was in the road, and I was driving home from a front house, and he was in the street, and so I, I picked him up, and uh, we had many crazy times. We met a guy named Marcos. Um, but my five seconds is when um, he looks at me in the morning and he goes, oh, I know where I am now. And he's, he's walking away from me after I had gone above and beyond 
of being nice. And I just realized that I had to stop being a doormat and uh, that the relationship I was in was kind of crappy and he was kind of abusive and uh, I deserved better. So a couple of things I liked about that when she said whatever yeah, (laughs) and how she said I picked up a guy, by which I mean I picked up this drunk guy. You could tell there was humor there and that I don't think she accidentally backed into a couple of those moments of comedy. She seems like she's a a funny person who knows where the humor lies. Yeah, I agree. She sounds like she's a good storyteller. Is that a story, though, do you think? I think she probably told us the last, you know, the last minute or two of the story. It sounds like the heart of the story, or at least the beginning of it, is going to be talking about that relationship that she's in so that she can build up to the moment where she's going to decide to get out. I'm curious if that is the moment in her life where she decides to get out of that troublesome relationship or not. Uh, But I love the fact that she identified the five seconds in her story because I really feel like she understands that everything in her story needs to sort of target towards that five seconds. All right, there's another one where the details of the story were maybe too crazy to believe. This is uh, Joanna. Um, I grew up in northwest Arkansas, a town of about 1,500 people. And my high school boyfriend, who I gave up a college tuition scholarship for, was later my fiancé, and I ran over his dog accidentally, and we had to bury the dog. And then months later, he bought me a dog, and then that dog dug up the carcass of the old dog. And it was that moment of realizing that um, I shouldn't be married to this man anymore. And he's ironically now the mayor of my hometown, what else? I've moved to California. I live in Los Angeles. What else? How much else do you need? Right. The dog <laughs> dug up the dog. <laughs> oh, I mean, sometimes <laughs> sometimes you end up with a great story just because of the stuff that happens. Like, yeah. Not a lot of, there's, like, not a lot of heavy lifting to do there. Yeah. You know, it's just the circumstances. Alone. I wouldn't have thought of the dog digging up the other dog. I've never seen that in a movie. No. That is not a cliched trope. <laughs> and it does seem symbolic somehow. Well, I didn't. I didn't see. I mean, I'm sure she would make it clear, but I really didn't see the connection between the live dog digging up the dead dog and her realization that the guy she was with wasn't good. I wouldn't mind teasing that out a yeah. little bit. Yeah, it's um. There's a lot of potential. You could tell too. She's um. She's got a natural way about herself. Yeah, that's nice. I realized that that man was the dead dog, or that <laughs> man was the live dog, keeping poking at my carcass. All right, good possibility. There were a few through lines to our stories. A lot of people talked about a great romance or a great romance that didn't happen, you know, that that stays with people. And it wasn't until I was playing a video game at the store I was working at as we were getting ready to close when I heard one of the characters, like, for the life of me, I cannot remember the game, but I remember hearing one of the characters saying, everybody deserves the best, no matter what. It was a fucking video game that convinced me to have this, that convinced me that, yeah, it's not working. A lot of people talked about, for instance, a moment of exceptional action. And my story is about the time that I fell down an elevator shaft. The main story is how we found kittens in the outhouse one morning at like three in the morning. I got involved unwittingly in an orgy that I didn't understand was an orgy with a bunch of uh, similarly aged, like college-aged Greek teens. So our best thinking was to euthanize them. While I do not condone drinking and driving, it happens. My story is about how I uh, tried and failed to become an astronaut in Canada. Staying with a stripper after getting stabbed by a homeless person and her feeding me blueberry pancakes. Sometimes those are good because there's a lot that has led up to them. 
But sometimes you just have a moment and, you know, you, you get hit by a bus. That's a moment of exceptional action and nothing leads up to it. It's a great thing to tell people, but it's hard to sort of build into a story. So you're looking for the action that has been sort of built up from somewhere else. Right. I think maybe one of the problems is when we say story, I, don't, I haven't looked in the dictionary. I bet there are 20 definitions of story, right? The story could be like, let me tell you what happened to me. And it was the most notable thing in my day. But that doesn't mean it has a dramatic arc, for instance, right? right. The story that you tell with uh, at the Moth might not be the best stories that you've ever told about craziest things that ever happened to you. I mean, that's some of them were pretty crazy, but... Right, but that's very true. Some of the really crazy things that have happened to me don't make good stories. I mean, essentially, they have to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Yeah. And a lot of times people come to me and they only have the end. Just yeah. that one moment. That one big thing that happened. Like, I think this, and this is this is good, this is promising, but this illustrates that point. Oliver was in a place not many of us would be in, but still it's pretty notable. So about 15 years ago or so, I was climbing up Mount Rainier with a friend. We started at about 5,000 feet. We went up to, basically that's where that road drives up to. We went up to about, oh, eight, 9,000 feet and decided we were tired. And we started to walk down. All we were dressed in with, like, this jeans, T-shirts, backpack. And decided, ah, we're not going to walk up any further. So we started walking down, and my friend walks off and sees the side of the glacier. And it just kind of goes down about 3,000 feet. And he says, I think I could jump that. I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure. He's like, we just slide down, like, 3,000 feet and not have to walk. And I stop, and I'm like, I don't know. I, it just seems crazy. And he jumps off, and he slides down. And there I am, at the top of this glacier, thinking, if your friend jumps off a cliff, would you do it too? So I decided to go ahead, jump off, slide down, following him. We ended up going down about three, 4,000 feet down, then climbing the rest of the way down. And later that summer, I realized that that was probably the stupidest thing I could have possibly done in my life. But, you know, nature saves the brave, or nature saves the foolish, and there we go. I mean, right away, I think, I don't know what 3,000 feet looks like. I that's really true. don't. So that's a hard thing for me to picture. The glacier's hard to picture. The story hangs on the fact, is he going to survive it or not? Those tend to be difficult stories to tell because if you're telling me the story, we know you survived. Right. Uh, if that story built up from, I'm a coward, and I finally did something that was not you know, cowardly, or right. I have a problem trusting people, and I decided to trust my friend might work a little bit better, but at this point it sounds just like something amazing that this guy did that he will always remember that doesn't really carry a lot of weight story-wise. Thank you, Matt Dix. Don't move. Well, you can move if you want, but you're going to be back tomorrow, I'm telling you, because tomorrow is when we will be announcing who you will be coaching up for a story. That's great. All right, here's another show from the Panoply Network that I dig. I treat myself to it as much as I can. It's called Happier. It's with Gretchen Rubin. I'm Gretchen Rubin. On this week's episode of Happier, we'll talk about why we should treat ourselves and why we should avoid the stumbling block of the fake self-actualization loophole. You'll find Happier at iTunes.com slash Panoply or at Panoply.fm. And now the spiel, crooks and nannies. To celebrate the 135th anniversary, the good people of Thomas's of English muffin fame gathered at the spot 
of the first baking of said muffins and gave away egg sandwiches on English muffins. So which English city did this take place in? Mercy, Blackpool, Whitchurch, Berwick-upon-Tweed? Now it was 20th and 8th. That's right. Right here in Manhattan. This morning, I stumbled upon an orange truck offering quite delicious breakfast sandwiches. And it was right next to the house where Samuel Bath Thomas, an Englishman living in America, first delineated nook from cranny in 1880. There I talked to Lauren Waddy, who was overseeing the event for Thomas's. Dude, what came first? The nook or the cranny? I think the crannies. What's the difference? Um, I think the nooks and yeah. the... I don't know. Maybe it's... I don't know the difference. That's a good question. Is it size? Is it depth? Is maybe it... it's depth. And the peaks and valleys? Yes. You know what I mean? We got to get the peaks and valleys. So I think it could, that could be it. So here we are in Manhattan, and Manhattan means pop-up English muffin truck to most people. Why here? Uh, we're actually in front of the muffin house. So this is the original location where Samuel Bath Thomas baked English muffins. So behind the walls in this apartment is still his oven. Okay, couple questions. Shoot. I thought that was on Drury Lane. <laughs> uh, I don't think of it. I don't know. Maybe. When I when I said Drury Lane, you know what I was talking about. He means the Muffin Man song. Do you know the Muffin <laughs> Man? Who's at Drury Lane? I went way over my head. I was like, what? what? I don't know what that means. Sorry, that went over my head. Okay, now tell me, why do you name them English muffins? Great question. He came from England. Okay. So when he moved here, maybe he just wanted to keep it. It's, it's supposed to be an alternative to the crumpet. Crumpet has fewer NNCs. Yes, and it's way fewer NNCs. Yeah. And we fork split ours. That's how we keep the nooks and crannies. They say fork split. To me, that's an option, but it's not the best option. Oh, because it's the best option. <laughs> if you want, you want to keep the nooks and crannies, you got to fork split. You knife, you lose them. I don't know. I think that if you fork split, sometimes you get too much bread on one half of the muffin, and then it's not a nook and a cranny. Then it's a veritable mountain of muffin. <laughs> Exactly. Fork split. Fork split. If you leave with anything, fork split. Is fork split a uh, trademarked phrase? No, but we should. Really? Anyone think it'd be fork split? Everything. Really? So when my marriage disintegrated, I can say it was an easy, <laughs> it's an easy breakup. It was fork split. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So out of the corner of my eye, I see, well, I don't know his name, but I know he's the actor who played John Boy Walton in The Waltons. And he's been acting ever since. I see him all the time. He's been on The Americans, but I can't remember this dude's name. I want to call him John Boy because the truck's right across the street from the Atlantic Theater. I figure he was in a play at the Atlantic. He was lured outside because, you know, free muffins. So then I look it up on Google on my little iPhone. Ah, the actor's name is Richard Thomas. That's right. Oh, look, and over there, there's the guy from Miami Vice, Philip Michael Thomas. Wait a minute. It turns out these people have hired famous Thomases. In fact, earlier in the day, I missed her, but Olympic ice skater Debbie Thomas was there and lurking at the edges of the crowd was this large blue anthropomorphized tank engine, but I later found out he just lives in Chelsea and came for the free breakfast. But he did talk to Richard and Philip Michael about breakfast. So, so of all the gigs you've ever been hired for, how often is it just because you have the surname Thomas? I think this is probably a first, apart from like family reunions and stuff like that, which we don't do very often. You guys aren't related, are you saying? We probably are. Yeah, no, sure. but this is the second time. I, when they had the anniversary of St. Thomas, uh -huh. they asked me to come down there years ago. That was many years ago in the 80s. Do you feel a connection to St. Thomas Aquinas? I do. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So what's your breakfast food of choice? My breakfast food of choice, well, today would be Thomas's English muffins, wouldn't Smart. it? Yes. <laughs> but what do you usually do for breakfast? I'll tell you my breakfast <clears throat> strategy if you tell me yours. Well, I'm not a big, I only, I'm only a big breakfast eater when I'm like 
in a hotel. I think breakfast. I think breakfast in a hotel is one of the great, great breakfasts. You know, if I had, and I spent so many years making breakfast every morning for seven kids that now, if I can just get a little tea and yogurt down my down my gullet, I'm a happy man. I'm like you. They say breakfast is the most important meal of the day. I usually skip it, and then when I have lunch, that becomes the most important meal of the day. Yeah. Yeah. What's your breakfast strategy? Okay, I love breakfast, but I'm vegan or vegetarian. Nice. So my my breakfast starts off with a kale smoothie. Whoa! Yeah, from Whoa. this recipe book called Recipe for Life by Sandy Moraes. The member of the Velvet Underground, John Cal, he would be hired to work the kale smoothie <laughs> events. So you can't get that gig. <laughs> and that's with a C. Richard Thomas, you know if you watch The Americans, the last episode just aired this week. He looks like he's in his late 40s. Guess what? He was telling me that he went to Columbia in 1969. He's 63 years old. The guy was on an episode of Bonanza as an adult, and he was a total diva. His rider for this event forced the Thomas's people to remove all the nooks but leave the crannies. No, I'm kidding. He was a lovely, lovely guy. Philip Michael Thomas has this cool beard, and he wasn't in pastels, so you would never recognize him from the vice and i didn't know that the muffin house was on 20th and i never realized that english muffins are actually as american as french is mustard i learned a lot i ate a little and then i fork split that's it for today's show andrea salenzi enjoys clarence thomas english muffins the breakfast that's made with original intent joel meyer eats dave thomas's english muffins no not the guy from wendy's the guy from sctv it matters it's there in the taste andy bowers eats marlo thomas's english muffins free to be for breakfast or tea the gist inspired every day by dylan thomas's english muffins rage rage against the dying of what's lit do not go gentle if you're not fork split. Thanks for listening.